and it's rocket. Yo, welcome to another episode of the Where It Went podcast, where we are currently somehow still um, discussing and exploring the Revelation Records discography catalog in chronological order. This episode, we have a very interesting album. Jason, what what are we talking about? What what are we doing here? Today, we're talking about the Knee Deep in Guilt LP by Speak or Speak 714, if you want to say that. Rev 64, released in 1998. I think we better include the 714 on there because we don't want to get a cease and desist on Ah. this episode, which will discuss eh, not really in depth but it's it's touched upon in there and it's a crucial part of their story but before we get too deep into it it's deep into guilt too before deep we get too now. deep three deep into guilt three knee deep into guilt it's already time to hey, shot it. Shot it. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> All right. I'm just going to leave give, that in. <laughs> oh, you better. Um, I want to give a, a bit of bow to this episode's sponsor, um, War, our friends at War Records. Website is www.war-rec.com. You can get releases from Strife. Berthold City's newest album that Jason is on, Cinderblock, Bent Blue, um, goodness, um, there's an act. Just, uh, an act. Last Gasp um, just announced a new record, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of fixation, hometown here. Oh, yeah, so many heavy hitters um, there. Just a lot of killer stuff. And, you know, like we've talked about, it's always uh, looks nice, sounds nice. Um, lots Quality. of cool merch. Yes. Um, and I, I really believe it's one of the best labels out there today doing hardcore. And I'm not just saying that because they're one of our sponsors. I really believe they're in the upper echelon of hardcore labels today. Same. And you can tell that they care. They put thought and care into the way that everything looks and is presented. Uh-huh. So you... 100% agreed. It's thoughtful. Yeah, yeah, I mean, even when I got the Berthold City cassette, it came in like a plastic bag with a little cardboard thing stapled to the top, like a like a 1980s skateboard pack with a zine, which I still somehow just have chilling on my desk here in front of my computer. That's how important it is to me, you know, hardcore. I remember when Berthold City came out and you didn't know who was in the band. There was no indication of anyone who was in the band when they very first came out. There's no, there was not a photo of them. All there was was this ad, and and you couldn't see the person's face. Who later we found out was Andrew Klein, the um, leader of the of the War Rex there, and it 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 really took me by surprise. I wasn't sure what to expect. And it hit hard, and they just kept hitting harder, and uh, awesome stuff. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, Jason, like, and and Hav, they they care. Everything's done with care, and uh, it's important if you're running a label. And I just think 
I haven't heard any, like they're not one of those labels, you know, we know in hardcore there's sometimes over the years, I'm not saying necessarily anyone now, but over the years there's been labels that have come and gone and there've been complaints about this and that. And you don't hear that with, with war. Uh, I just hear all, all good stuff. So mm-hmm. bit it bow to them. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have on the, uh, Oh yeah. That's all I have on the, on the, uh, sponsoring front I, I don't have anything else to talk about either jason you or should we just kick it no i got something i mean just well, uh, of course you do i i really like dan's podcast dano says so presented by trust records and also hav was lucky enough to go to the 411 show uh-huh. i was not uh-huh. but if you wanted to grab the last sizes of the 411 shirts they have some at the trustrecordscompany.com site nice that's all i got all right yeah no i love i listened to dan's uh bunch of them the one with mario and ian mckay one was fun and um bobby uh, from soul side sam mcfeeders one was really good i gotta listen to that one i haven't listened uh-huh. to that i really I'm a, I'm a sam mcfeeders uh am i allowed to say a fuck boy a stan a stan, a stan. McFeeders? A stan. stan mcfeeders holy <laughs> shit in fact sam mcfeeders mutations the book, the last book that he did, I think, is one of my favorite books ever done by a hardcore punk person. It's really. I have that on my shelf right now. Hey yo, I, um, I really suggest diving and into. I haven't that read book. it. Uh-huh. I too have it on my shelf, and I've read yeah, most was, of it. Uh-huh. I was actually sent it by uh, my good buddy Mark from Primary in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. best food mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, vegan food, and. Um, it was a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and I haven't read it. But yeah. I have to first read that uh, Ralph Macchio book I got signed. Oh yeah, uh, last week. So I'm a busy guy. Yes, indeed. But enough about that. Yeah, right. Let's let's just get knee deep in in Dano. episode we're here to talk speak are we we ready to dive in yeah let's Let's dive in that handsome bastard (laughs) this can you see it says metal (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but that's one of those ones that's one of the ones that doesn't have didn't they end up putting the words 714 on the cover of the second press i think maybe a sticker it's on the there's a it's on here but that was this is later that was a legal necessity somebody a funk band or something called Speak got a hold of us and told us to stop being speak. So uh, we did what you do in the nineties and put a number on it. Half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Touchy, touchy subject. Yeah, that is a touchy subject. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know I, I didn't give you guys time to formally intro or say what we're doing. So I'll shut up for a second and let you get structured. If that's, if that's necessary. No, I, I mean, Oh no, no, no. We were saying it's, it's, 
Hav's going through something. I'm, like I'm, I'm right literally, now. as we speak, going through a legal battle about a band name for the second time in my in my um, musical career, and it's not fun. And uh, I mean, at least you didn't have to be speak AD or uh, <laughs> you know X speak X or something like that. Seven one four is a well. Speak was originally named Thirst. Okay, and Thirst. I don't remember if we got cease and desisted or we just got or we just got chewed out. You know, we got reached out, got contacted by somebody or Rev did a copyright search or, mm-hmm. or something. But so we went for speak, which literally was you know sourced right there. This predates the band, actually. Uh-huh. The statement, the tattoo speak, the band is named after the tattoo. Okay. Okay. And we just figured, okay, it's coming from my tattoo, it's not gonna be anywhere. I think the record was already in manufacturing. I think Rev had already done the plant when somebody named Speak got a hold of us. And that's where the 714 was. So I thought that Speak was from the 411 song Under Fire. Essentially, you know, in a way, but, you know, Jason. you're not wrong, but I didn't name it after me going, Speak. I named, you know, I just kind of, <laughs> you know, we were having to come up with a name on the fly, and either me or Foster pointed at my forearm and went, you know, that'd probably work. But you so, got the tattoo after four one one, or you got, I got the, the tattoo? tattoo while I, I got the tattoo while I was still living in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. It was just you know, literally speak your mind. You know, silence lies. Like life videos of mine. Okay, so, so let's talk about the formation of of speak. It's obviously two like Orange County hardcore legends. I don't know how else to put that, but it's you and Joe Foster. And this 1998, it's like just after what I consider pers- for myself, like peak Ignite, right? This is like mm-hmm. just past past our means. And in Orange County at the time, this brand of kind of more traditional hardcore it's n- not the most popular thing that there's a lot of metalcore happening, but you still have, you know, these, this sound will always be in the, in the water in Orange County. So how did you link up with Foster and then how did speak get spoken? Well, very unconventional. And, and, and again, I will, I will beg with beg you to bear with me because it's a fairly long story. I had been living in the Bay Area for about six years and had no intention of ever leaving, leaving politically, creatively, almost in every way. The weather, I just preferred the Bay Area to Southern California. I was the last surviving relative, or at least younger relative, not her siblings, of my grandmother, who had been one of the two women who raised me. And she had a stroke and was also, it was determined that she had bladder cancer, all in a very short window of time. And I had to come down basically keep an eye on her properties to manage her illness and, and to just basically keep an eye on her. I had to come back to Southern California. Uh, it was a sad thing for me, but one of the things that kept me sane during that period is Joe Foster heard I was down here and got a hold of me and said, I have these songs, five songs that I've been recording with different guys. I'm like, oh, he's like, this guy, Doug, I don't know if you know him, uh, Randy, which would be Randy from Pennywise. Sam Mars, who was in Straight Faced. I get Straight Faced and Strung Out and all of that stuff confused, which is, that's bad on me, not bad on them. Um, and Foster. 
and yeah, they had five songs and he wanted me to hear them and see whether I could write vocals to them. And I told him, I, I don't know much about these other guys' music, but it sounds to me like a logical sequel to the Unity song. Like, it sounds like you are one, too, right? I said, I could toy with some vocals like that, just, you know, if it's fun and see whether this is something we want to do. Well, let's write some more songs. I'd like to be involved in the structure and some more stuff. He said, absolutely. I got to the first practice, and I only had the vocals to one song. Um, but it was this, it was the song called Unheard Truths. And I belted it out. And at the end, like Sam and Doug were both kind of, holy shit. You're like, what was that? Which was great and really flattering, but also let me know that they didn't know my staff. You know, it was like, it was like, <laughs> they were like, where, where did Foster get this guy? You know, I was the only one in the room with that hairstyle. They all had shaved heads. They all looked like early night, you know, and Sam made some comments about, it's so weird because that song doesn't have a breakdown. It doesn't have a slow part. And I was like, neither does most of the fucking minor threat this guy did. Weirdo. You know, it was just like, there was this mindset that was locked into the template of the time or what I saw as being the template of the time. Uh, very nice guys, a very pleasant room to be working in. We knocked out the next five songs and had 10 ready to go. No problem. I never worked in the same room, room with Randy. He had exited the product, product project before I ever joined it. So the LP is basic tracks to five songs that existed when I joined and five songs that were finished afterwards. And all of the vocals are. And so that's how it came. That's how it came into beat. And that lineup that recorded on the record, did that lineup ever play live or did you kind of immediately start finding? The only person on the album who, play, who has played a show in... Is who? Me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, uh, Foster and I started butting heads very early on and sort of got ultimatum-ish with each other and got ultimatum-ish with the label in kind of a him or me kind of way. And history has borne out who won that particular tug of war. But to our credit, we remain friendly, you know, in the years to come. And there's plenty of pictures of us since then grinning and trying to out handsome each other. Uh, but no, by the time, by the time we went on the road, uh, there was a guitar, a guitar player I knew from Oakland and who had come up in the Arizona hardcore scene named Jeff Baker. Jeff Baker contacted a guy named Eric Simmerer, who was also from Arizona to come out and be the second guitar, give it kind of a fuller sound for live because I had been both hands broken by the time we broke up. It was a five piece and I really liked it. Uh, as far as Kevin Panner and Chris Lisk, they literally heard the gossip. You know, Orange County is mm -hmm. a small place. Mm -hmm. Like Oma, two things. Omahoney's back down here. He wrote an album with Foster and this sounds horrible. They're replacing all the guys. Mm -hmm. you know, and it was, you know, I had mixed feelings about that. I think the LP is better than the seven inch that we did with the second lineup. Although there's two great songs on it. In, in my opinion, I mean, all music is subjective. I am glad Joe and I got to do a really good record together that sounds like two guys from the original Orange County Hardcore Nucleus. From what, there used to be this group of people that they kind of called the UC Boys Hardcore 84. And, you know, he and I are part of that. And we put out a record that sounds straight out of that era. It, and I it, never got to do that. I did a lot of gorilla sounding stuff. My early Rev stuff had East Coast style, you know, influences on it and had me trying to figure out how to sound big and ominous while not aping anything Ray was doing or anything Choke was doing. On the Speak record, I just went, fuck it. I'm going to be the quintessential Orange County hardcore singer on this record. And it was really fun. And that's what this sound, like this record sounds like 
if there's a good, yes, if there's so, a guy yeah. in Orange County that I don't get along with and cannot stand me, it's Pat Dubar. But who are we fucking kidding? I'm doing my best Dubar that I'm humanly capable of on that record. You know, there's no credit has to be given what credit's due. That's me scratching the itch of always having wished I could have been the singer on You Are One. You know, and and that's where you know the Joe Foster. It this sounds like a Joe Foster record. Like Absolutely. undeniably, if you listen to this, you listen oh, to yeah. those early Ignite records, there's no question, but it doesn't have the melody of some of those Ignite songs. You know, some of those mm-hmm. songs are slower, very like kind of almost emotional, especially with Zoli's, Zoli's operatic singing on top of it. So it's like putting the gruff Dan O'Mahony vocals that still have a little bit of, you know, I don't want to say softness, but they're, they're not, there's still some, some, it's singing. not the no for an answer seven inch. Uh-huh. And it's, also not, of, it's also not four one one. It's, it's right. A, it's the weird like little pocket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The um, thing about Foster's music. I don't think that melody is the easy way to spot it. You guys, there's, there's, there's some things. Um, when you listen to Foster when he's writing hardcore, a chorus will rise, a chorus will fall, a chorus will rise, a chorus will fall, and then there'll be a big slide. And you know who your guitar player is. Mm-hmm. And there's and, like, and it's a cool thing if you're a musician and you have an identifiable singer. Uh-huh. That wasn't intended as a put down. I think too, uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Something that, that in the Foster sound, if we're going to label it that, uh-huh. is like staccato picking. You know, a little bit of like arpeggio and then lots of I don't harmonics. even know what those word mean, words like, mean. So I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure that you're right. You it's can, the like single on, the, sing, the single string picking, like you know, like some of that, and then the harmonics in there, the like really loud kind of ringing sounds. Well, so there's three guitar players who I would say sound like Orange County hardcore guitar players. And truthfully, like they all pull from different influences. You know, I think that Dubar sick Vic Menez on the cassettes that Ian used to send him and say, let's do this stuff, you know, love it, whatever. And Vic was very, very talented. Uh, Joe early on was very clearly influenced by pretty much every note of Mommy's Little Monster. You know? And Gavin Oglesby pulled from a wide box. Mm-hmm. But somehow those three guys, Vic Menez, Joe Foster, and Gavin Oglesby, they sound like Orange County hardcore guitarists. And they play nothing like each other. Mm-hmm. Like Gavin is all downstrokes and it sounds like he's picking with a silver dollar. You know, the Foster is much more delicate. And Vic is some weird townie who tripped and landed in hardcore. You know, it's like they're 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 an interesting trio of guys, but therein lies the Orange County hardcore songwriting thing. Mm-hmm. You know? To me, Orange County. That sound always, and I know this, I, Joe, you know, we talked to Joe for uh, the Ignite episode. We've had conversations with him. Pull from D.C. immensely. So it's almost like a lot of the stuff sound, to me, especially with Joe, I can hear the embrace, you know, and I can hear well, the it, nasty. Well, I'm going to hit you with an interesting piece of perspective. I knew Joe before, before Embrace existed. Mm-hmm. At the time he's telling you that, it's absolutely true, right? But I met Joe in 83. Those are months back in the minor threat days. And he was already right. an accomplished guitar player. So when I cite these influences, I think I'm talking baby Foster. Uh-huh. And you're talking grown-ass Foster. Uh-huh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's like Brian Baker went to the beach. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah <really. laughs> Brian, Brian Baker is a surf punk. But like, like Dan said, like I, th- that's it's a good thing I think to be mm-hmm. to have an identifiable style where uh-huh. someone just knows. Like if nobody said Joe Foster played on this. Well, do you guys know who Chris Lisk is? No, oh, yeah, I'm, yes. Okay, I Lisk. actually, I we we moved to Costa Mesa in 1988 or 89, and Lisk was in the first five people I ever met. So okay. I, I'm very familiar with Lisk. You know, he was a member of Speak, a touring member of Speak. He also, you know, and as long as I've known him, which would be since the late 90s to now, has been a good, dependable friend to me, a very honest guy, everything else. Said something to me a couple of years ago. I can't decide whether it pissed me off, made me introspective, or whether I just completely think he's wrong, but it stuck with me. And he was like, Did you ever think about if you had just used the same name for everything you've done? Because I've got like 17 records out under, you know, five or six different band names. It was all, what if it had all just been called, you know, No for an Answer? Don't you think you'd be able to do a lot more with music than you had done and everything else? And my counter to that was these bands all sound very, very different. I mean, God forgot, sounds nothing like No For An Answer, sounds nothing like 411, sounds nothing like Speak, sounded nothing like anything like that. So I think that would have been a hokey marketing hook and it would have been bullshit. But then he says, you know, well, Mike Muir's sounded a thousand different ways and it's always it's always uh, suicidal tendencies. How this plays into what you guys were saying, other than genetically, where you can just hear whatever my selection of polyps and, you know, however many teeth I have is, I don't know if I have a sound because I've tried to sing so many different ways. You know, it's like, you know, maybe it sounds like my voice, but doing a lot of different dances. I don't know whether that's for better or for worse. I just, I think it's true. And Lisk's statement makes me think about that. I have a question for you, kind of along on those same lines. Lyrically, mm-hmm. these lyrics and what you're saying sounds different to me than the previous bands that you've been in. Mm-hmm. So where were you coming from when you went to write the lyrics for these speak songs? Well, like one of the reasons that No For An Answer started wearing all black, right? And started becoming more and more wrote songs like Answer Me or Imperfect. Things had to do with the fact that very early on, I felt the punk rock draining out of straight edge of And I felt people setting themselves up to be perceived as, you know, and sort of, you know, Crusading Knights, which moral ascendancy, lyrical responsibility, I think is an integral, key part of hardcore. Self-elevation is not. Well, I had sort of maybe been trying to say that by example in a few bands. I would argue that the central theme of the Knee Deep and Guilt record is that we're not serious. Self-elevation has been. You know, the song Knee Deep and Guilt is about uh, Good Clean Hate is kind of about uh, In From the Cold is sort of about there. I just spent five years with Whiskey and Bad Tears. Next one is something or other. I forget what it is. It siphons the soul. It was just all about let's get rid of the edifice and stop pretending we're better than we are. You know, certainly doesn't even bother to discuss whether we're you know, tougher than we were presenting ourselves because <laughs> there's a funny story behind that because at the time the speak vocals were supposed to read be required be re- recorded my mouth was wired shut after having my ass kicked in las vegas um I, no we, yeah we got we booked time in the studio and finished the basic tracks on the second five songs and i went out of town the weekend before 
we were supposed to record vocals and got myself in a little bit of a mess and had my had my jaw wired shut for the next six months. Or not six months. Anyway, wow. yeah, Foster, Foster was furious. He was so pissed. <laughs> <You know. laughs> wow. So that... So that's a react. So do you felt that thing of people looking up to you as this singer of No For An Answer and the other bands and they have their preconceived I don't even, who you should be? And I don't even know if I'm saying I felt people looking up to me. That's kind of self-grandiose in and of itself. But what I would say is that seemed like that was the template or the expectation of any hardcore singer in a fairly prominent band. And it wasn't a script I was comfortable with. Yeah. You know? Like to me, oh, to me, you need to introduce the human factor if you're going to, you know, here's the story. It's a corny thing by now. We've all heard it. But I think you, if you're going to point your finger, which is fine, but you also need to fully employ the three that are pointing you. And typically, they're also the more interesting three fingers. You know, those, those points at which you know yourself better than anybody else. You confess to them and can find common ground and acknowledging is arguably more interesting than anything other than your most important moral states. You know, there are certain things. Yeah. You absolutely want to fly those flags, but beyond that, maybe leading by example is copying to your failings, not to your superiorities. Yeah. It must've been hard to write a song. It does because you, I mean, the lyrics are very straightforward and in your face and you have that song that even says, this is a song about addiction, which is not really the standard for lyrics that you hear at the time of the youth crew revival. Right. That's what I was going to say is this, this is out at the time, literally at the the arguably on the East coast, the height of the the youth crew revival. Yeah. On the East coast, it was all floor. Let's, 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 in the interest of true confession and and visibility, let's look at a couple of things, which is I'm a punk rocker and a contrarian by nature. And I probably figured that would piss people off. I was the first person I ever heard referred to as an edge breaker. I learned the term hearing it, you know, used in reference to myself. And I was like, all right, that'll work. Let's run with that. You know, but I was never, a, you know, face down in the, in the gutter whiskey drunk, which I think those lyrics might suggest. But, but I came from a family riddled with addiction. And, you know, drinking episodes had influenced, you know, my life path. I never would have got my ass kicked in Vegas as a sober boy. Um, but, you know... I would say you're saying, you know, that this song might've been hard to write or that song might've been hard to write. Not not really because the middle finger is kind of second nature to me. And I went to Catholic school. I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy. I grew up in the confessional, you know, so, you know, it is what it is. You know, we, to me, we're doing our bands right. And if you're part of this thing, when it was much, 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 much smaller, even smaller than it was in 88, we're doing our bands right if the lyrics apply to us more than anybody else, they more accurately depict our specific story and we're doing our bands right. If they have very little in common with the bands right next to it, because this whole thing was supposed to be to me, was supposed to be about people who are instinctively trying to find a way to live outside. And which is why, and Greg, you and I have talked about this and, other people, which is why one of the ways that we differ in stuff is you have an appreciation for things. You'll talk about quintessential heart revelation releases or quintessential hardcore releases. And I can't begrudge you that because our passions, you know, they fall where they fall. There's certain types of graphic styles, certain photographers I obsess about. I bite their styles. I'm a horrible Gavin Oglesby ripoff. 
when it comes to, when it comes to graphic arts, right? But I hate template, like the group template. Like uh, I heard you discussing. I think it was was you laugh and talking about you know in sort of the after interview thing that you did with Casey, talking about how maybe it's not a, it's not an essential revelation release, and it, don't begrudge you that. I would say thank fucking God. You know, is the things that would qualify it as an essential anything release are the exact exact opposite of why we did. I hope that right. doesn't come off as condescending. What I'm saying is, no, you know, I'm, looking I, at a guy, I'm looking at a guy wearing a purple hat and a dinosaur junior hoodie. I don't think I don't think you're afraid to march to your own drummer. No. <laughs> right, and no, and that's uh, why so, I, say, you know, I get, yeah. I get because, and then yeah. you know, in a way, stuff ages differently as well because. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you can look back, and it happens to me too, even with a lot of like, like we mentioned DC stuff. And mm-hmm. I was actually just talking to a friend about this this morning about how much context matters in really? music, Absolutely. especially punk music, because now you may hear something like, uh, um, like we're talking about Dag Nasty, and right. you know, Javier has made it known he's not a fan of Dag Nasty, but. Well, we I can find him. It. We can find him some kind of a doctor somewhere. We can, I see definitely. his. I <laughs> see he's coming from because I wouldn't if you didn't. I heard him when I was like fourteen or fifteen, and at the time I didn't hear anything like that. And I'm sure you people like yourself and Foster hearing it in real time. I mean, that was like a game changer because there was nobody that sounded really like that. Can I say record? But if you're listening to it for the first time, thirty five years later. It might sound weak or it might sound like, you know what I'm saying? I, I don't know. If well, I'm and that's to me, that's but. so like the knee deep and guilt interview is basically becoming the visibility, the, the, the full disclosure interview, which is kind of cool. We like that. But, it's but I will tell you that there are three hardcore records, probably, you know, for whatever people think I, I have issues I have with my own past or exceptions I take with the, with the label that kind of introduced me to people and everything else. If you want to be real, there are three hardcore records that will make me point my finger and sing in the car and act like I'm, you know, you know, pushing back into the crowd against against the seat of my challenger. And they're uniform choice screaming for change, agnasty can I say, and break down the wall. I'm a 16-year-old, I was 20 when those came out. Don't I shouldn't lie. Anyway, but um, but you know, I'm a 20-year-old, I'm a 20-year-old hardcore kid going nuts on the floor at Fenders anytime I hear any of that stuff. You're talking about how it might not land somebody, somebody the same 20 years later. And the reason it won't land the same way is because it's been done to death because templates have formed around it. Template equals death for me, creative. You know, unless it's your own or Gavin's. <laughs> yeah. well, and that's what that was. I was thinking, you know, when I was prepping for this and listening to the record, mm-hmm. how, you know, with the stuff you've done, especially you know starting with no for an answer like you said it's always been different like mm-hmm. carry nation doesn't sound like no for an answer right 411 doesn't sound like carry nation mm-hmm. um you know god forgot etc and this even doesn't sound like anything that you'd done prior either but also it's surprising because it was a bit of a like throwback to I've thought about sound. that, I, I've, and I've, I've thought about that. I see a certain, I see a certain contradiction, you know. And I th- think it really just had to do with I'm back in Orange County, and I guess so is my creative mindset. 
is I did it. I started working on the speak songs weeks after returning to Southern California. And I think there's a lot of women Rome in that record that if I'd been in town a year, I probably might've gone in a more inventive direction. Kind of glad I didn't because I, it's, it's a document that it's a better document of that sound and of my ability to create that sound than I think for an answer is and you've talked, I think we've talked about it before. I don't like that. Crusade. You know, like it's, it's lyrically, I love it. And the guys did a great job. I'm fucking awful. I thought, I, you know the scene in 300 where they kick the guy into the hole, you know, this is Sparta, and he falls and falls away? I think the vocals on that sound like that's King Kong falling down that hole. Sounds like some <laughs> giant Sounds like some giant gorilla with a tummy ache falling away from the mic for 25 minutes. Huh. And just for, for people for people that are listening, because I don't know if we're good, you're talking about a Thought Crusade. The uh, no Crusade by No for an Answer. I, I hate okay. the vocals. I sound, you know, I weighed 200 pounds and I sound like I weigh 400 pounds on that record. <laughs> you know, I could lift, you know, I could, I could probably bench 250 and I sound like a bench of a, a milk truck. Like everything about it is just an exaggeration of a portrayal. Yeah. You know, Carrie Nation's vocals are more real and 411's are more real still. And I would argue that the realest vocals I've done have been more recently in China's club. And those, I remember when I released that band, I put this song called Landline on Facebook and people didn't really think it was the vocal. I had somebody ask me if I was playing guitar or something. Huh. You know, and I was like, no, that's, that's me. You know, so. That had to feel kind of cool, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. To yeah, know that you're, you know, yeah. not stuck in a rut, so to speak. Like It's, not it's, like, oh, con- you know, it's confusing. If you look at somebody like Nick Cave, right? His early stuff doesn't sound like his late stuff, but he sounds like him in it. There's less artistic confusion than there is in my stuff. There's better continuity. No. So what did you think about, so we, we touched on about the whole revival of that mm-hmm. sound. So it's almost like, from what I gather, from where you're at, you're like straddling these two thoughts of like, you want to advance and you want to move forward. And and when we, when we talk about the seven inch, I know there's even kind of a song about, you know, not necessarily looking back. But here we are, you're playing this in this band that, you know, kind of has more of a quote unquote throwback sound. Mm -hmm. And also at the time, I don't I can't really speak to the West Coast, but fortunately, this is one of those records that came out in my real time of being Mm -hmm. hardcore. I was around at the time on the East Coast. This style was it was this or nothing, you know, like all the bands out here. I didn't playing that. I didn't know that. That would explain that would explain why Foster was writing but I didn't know that. Isn't so, you know, I lived in the Bay Area and I was only weeks back in Southern California. The Bay Area is its own world. And the part of the Bay Area that I cared about couldn't be more removed from Orange County Hardcore. I had even quit Maximum Rock and Roll by the time I came back down. But I was into bands like Neurosis, Ben Gone, and Ojo Rojo, and Multifacet. And socially, I was all hung up on, at the time, I think the singer from Neurosis's girlfriend, I was all about studded belts and leopard skin collars and everything else. I had no fucking idea there was a Ray, this Ray Capo Civil War enactment going on in New York. <laughs> you know, I didn't, so what did you think? By the so, time, no, like, so I came home and Foster was working on what sounded like you are one to me. And I said, well, I'll be, I am too, you know. <laughs> and then we go out on the road, and here and here you're still not landing where you perceive it, which that's not a correction of you. It's like I get the context that you sort of think we walked into, 
But Speaks First One show Speaks First shows were with AFI and with the Nerve Agents mm-hmm. and with punk bands like F Minus. It wasn't until we went back east that we started running into rooms full of champion hoodies and you know camo car- cargo shorts and everything else. And those people were incredibly kind to us because of no for an answer and because of the star on the record. But for me, it wasn't created within that context. And the people I had populated the band with, well, the guitarists at least, didn't come from that either. And we did, you know, we did things. Like by the rough tour, Speak decided none of us would shave during the entire tour. The bands were all black and we used mic stands. I didn't, but you know, both 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 star players did because we wanted to fuck with Temple. And it sounded better. You know, uh, Lisk and Jeff Baker singing the backups to every single chorus in that set sounded fuller than the random 19-year-old, you know, screaming the incorrect lyric into the extended mic, you know, and not that I didn't you know, sing along in that, but it was like, we felt it was the best execution, but it also set us apart from the other bands on that tour. You know, the, are you talking about the Rev tour? The Rev tour. Yeah. So speak, uh, only, how, speak, so. speak did five weeks, us solo, I think five or six weeks on the Rev tour with three other bands. And we did Europe. That was all the touring we did. It was, in the, a two, it was in like a two-year window max. And so the, the other bands tour, were... I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think the other bands, I mean, to put it in context, were better than a thousand in my eyes and, and battery, battery. Right? Yeah. You know, all of whom, we all had a lot of fun together, but it was a way to, you know, that tour might as well have been SSD Control, Minor Threat, DYS, and then speak was motorhead. It was like in terms of our behavior, in terms of how we carried ourselves, you know, it was a fairly hard drinking band. You know, it was the only band that got any tussles on that tour. We're the only one that would, you know, disappear and stay at somebody else's house instead of the whatever house the tour was landing at. Um, it was it was the outcast. It was the outcast fan on that tour. You know, when Ray was fighting with better than a thousand, he rode with Speak for a few days. You know, and that was hilarious because people are like, how's that going to work? And they don't understand. Ray and I go back way, 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 That's way, I was going to say, you guys, you know, I know you go back with yeah. the Youth of Today guys from, you know, very, very he, early on. He beat me in the only wrestling match we've ever had. So someday I'm going to stab him. But, uh. you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're good. Uh, we kind of skipped forward to the touring, but what, what about when you uh, got together with Jordan to talk about putting out the Speak record? We didn't talk funny. about that part of it. To put it bluntly, I let Foster handle all of that. Mm. But then when Foster and I were at odds, I beat him to the punch and getting a hold of Jordan and seeing whether he would be open to it continuing without the two of us combined. And he said it would. And that's what happened. Like I said, Joe and I luckily have been able to remain friendly and humorous in the years since. But it wasn't the most amical pop, you know, parting of, a, of an original lineup of a band. Like we had to pay Doug... Doug and we had to pay Doug and Randy for their performances up front since the original unit was, was disbanded. Uh, otherwise we couldn't put out the record. Wow. And, uh, you know, Doug in particular was really at odds with Foster at the time. I'm sure they mended it at some point. You know, if you're from anything 30 years ago and you can't laugh and slap each other on the back 30 years later, you're kind of defective, mm. you know, or, or you're me and Pettenbar. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that that's true. I hope it's not, but I've been told many, many times he's 
still nowhere near okay with me. That the cost of a bus ticket will get you on a bus. Hmm. So how long after the record came out did you get the cease and desist or the notice that you can't have used the name speak or that someone wanted to chat? Almost simultaneously. I don't think they were back from the factory. Okay. And so I think that's how the sticker went on. I think the jacket doesn't say 714 on the jacket had a sticker. No, yeah. It's, I, I actually – The 714 is silent. I saw a, a poster on eBay with the – and even the poster has a speak 714 sticker on it. Mm. I, I hate that seven. I hate that seven one four appendage, and it was like you know, keep trying to come up with other things. Speak OC and this and that. And, uh-huh. it was like, and then it just kept happening. It kept happening. One eighty twos and one sixteens, you know, all over music. I was like, oh, I wish we hadn't done that. You know, so you want some? You want some? Since I know you guys like the record nerd on records, want to okay. know some some funny things about that record? Do you know what that what that back cover actually is? That cover? Yeah. Live show. I mean, I just thought. Yeah, but you got to think about it. Yeah, but Speak hadn't played a show yet. That's a, that's an Ignite shot, and that's Zoli's arm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I and I saw it when the artwork was turned in. I was like, um, uh, yeah, fucking all right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, I can see a couple of Ignite shirts in there. It's probably from Europe, too. That front cover was when I started learning how much you can do with a photograph on a computer because that was shot against a brick wall in broad daylight in the summer. And it looks like it's, you know, under a bridge somewhere. Uh-huh. And the, yeah. the original photos, you could see my eyes clear as day and everything else. I really love that image. Foster did, Foster did a beautiful job with all of that. That choice of the blue and yellow, like everything. That's that. The visuals on that record are pretty much Joe's. In fact, you know, you look at my records, you really rarely find anything with a serif font. Uh-huh. You know, whereas, and that thing uses copper plate, but it's a beautiful looking album. It's a fantastic job. So that's the insert. Who is I'm that in the sure insert? That's a, that's, that's that's a statue of, of Joe that to this day stands in ancient Rome. Outside <laughs> the Colosseum. Uh, I think it's an old modeling shot or something. But even that is decayed in really cool fashion. You know, yeah, it, looks cool. it has impact. Yeah. So I actually looked online if I could see any. I looked up online for any old speak interviews and mm-hmm. I did find an interview with Jody Foster where they asked him if he had a favorite layout that he's ever worked mm-hmm. on. And if so, mm-hmm. why does it stand out? And he said that uh, his response was, I guess I kind of like the cover of the first speak 714 album. It's pretty basic, but I was trying out some new film and feel like I caught Dan at the prime of his youth. Uh, that image means a lot to me for some reason. No, I just thought he, that was cool. He, that's one of no, his favorite he things it. he's worked on. He, he yeah. crushed it. And that's really cool. My favorite photo that's ever been taken of me. And the only time that it's ever made sense to me in my life that a woman has actually kissed this mug is one that Foster took during that same during that same shoot. He's a good photographer. He has a good eye. He's he's artistically he's a gifted guy. Joe and I rev at two very different speeds. The night that Joe and I met, people had to kick us out of the fight. And it was over a girl at a government issue uniform choice show. You know, it's like you know, it's just we're made very different. You know, but yeah. I would be a complete douche if I didn't acknowledge his talent. You know, yeah, the layout's cool because it also doesn't. This doesn't scream what it sounds like, which I always like. You know what I mean? I like right. It doesn't, the only thing I not, the only thing I don't like about that is there were a bunch of different photos that were taken that day, and the one thing I didn't want to do is what Wishing Well. 
had 8 million different pictures of bald guys thinking. You know, like there's just a, there was the post Ian or the, it's not, I guess it's Alec on the cover of the Minor, yeah. first minor Threat 7 Inch. There was this big thing in California of you got to be bald and you got to be pondering something heavy. <laughs> whether, whether you're sitting, whether you're sitting on the back of a diehard semi, whether you're sitting in Huntington Beach Central Park, whether you're sitting outside, you know, Stompbox practice studio, you need to be need to be pondering the mysteries of life. And mo- realistically, in that photo, I'm probably doing something like scratching the sides of my head, you know, like because I didn't give them any, you know, woe is me stare off into the sunset shots, and that's kind of has that vibe, but it's so well done. I'm just, I, I like, yeah. It's funny, when I first saw the image of you on the poster, I remember when I was younger and I saw that, I thought, oh my God, Dan is covered in tattoos. But now when I looked at it in 2022, mm-hmm. I thought, man, Dan has literally almost no tattoos. You know? Well, what's, you know what's funny about tattoos is it's an evolving aesthetic. You know, I have tattoos on my hands and my neck and my knuckles, and I'm a general manager in a, in a corporate setting. Mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. And I used to think I had a shit ton of tattoos, but the, the aesthetic eventually became that you roll up your sleeve and you stick it in a bucket of tattoo and you pull it out <laughs> and, everything, and, and everything is covered. I Very come true. from like, I come from like the Rollins early eighties, one at a time, each meal aesthetic. They're all three inches apart. I mean, I even, you know, shamelessly, I even used to go to the same tattoo artist as him and Danzig and all those other eighties guys that got each meal. And I have none. Yeah. No. Well, again, purple hat. You're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> how many? How many band tattoos do you have, though, of your own, of your own bands? Do you have one. Just one. Because you got to remember, Speak is named after the tattoo, not vice versa. But that I have a no. For, count. But I have a no for an answer. I have the no for an answer. I spy logo. Well, just the words no for an answer. Not the words I spy. But I have a no for an answer just on the shoulder. Nice. Apparently, Gavin and I are the members of Carrie Nation. The ones who wrote everything are the only members of Carrie Nation that don't have Carrie Nation tattoos. Well, that's interesting. Funny. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say who wrote everything. We wrote together, but so it's the, the 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 guitar guy and the and the lyrics guy. We don't have Carrie Nation tattoos. But uh, would it be then Steve and and Big Frank, right? They yeah, have the tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always thought it'd be cool to have as like a pocket logo, you know, like a pocket logo spot on my chest, but. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you can get four one on tour. For one thing, no. For one thing, this this chest is never going to be never going to see the light of day. So (laughs) it really doesn't matter. For all you know, I've got a hammer and sickle there. So, Hoff, do you think uh, for the LP, it's time to? I think it's time to kick the uh, hot tracks. Okay, Uh, Dan. So you've been with us before you know the drill we're going to go through and talk about our favorite mm-hmm. songs from the album and you know for us it's really just as a uh, a listener mm-hmm. but for you it could be something a little bit deeper or do i give you do i give you feedback on those songs or we're just you can yeah, yeah, yeah please. you can you could be like wow that's you, really you, you right. wanted to okay. like like me i'll go I first my, my favorite song on this record is virus um it's the most socially it's the most socially relevant i think it it you know what that means half what my mind being blown why do we pick the same one we pick the same one yeah yeah it doesn't happen happen doesn't happen very often times you know as a 
I was a huge Ignite fan. I'm a huge Orange County hardcore fan. Uh, I'm a, a fan of Dan O'Mahony bands. And to me, this song kind of encapsulates all that more than any on this particular album. Um, I thought it was kind of the hardest hitting in, it, it checked so many boxes for me. And so that, that, that's my favorite. I think it's the most yeah. topical and particularly, particularly, you know, in the nineties, you know, at this point we have the magic Johnson example and AIDS and HIV are, are less a source of fear or, or collective denial. But at the time I, I thought it was a good thing to shine a light on. Yeah. My, my reasons were pretty much the same as Hobbs as I hold screaming for change in as you know, probably not as high a regard as you just because you were there for it. But as a, an innocent bystander, if you will, like I hold that that's one of my favorites. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, like uniform choice screaming for change is a top tier record. And this gave me those like early ignite, you know, the Joe Foster era stuff, uniform choice. I mean, the, the drum rolls, you know, you know, I, I can't drum, but like, that's a total uniform choice. You know the drum roll. Like you know, no, no feeling, no man. Exactly. That, that's that could that could have been on a lot of which mm-hmm. right? And and I love that. And but it still has that that kind of like I call it like the Orange County hardcore breakdown as well in it. That slows down. As opposed down a to bit. Wishing Well Records of South Korea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but that song is just like if someone's ne- someone never heard this record mm-hmm. and said, "Give me a song," I'd be right. like. Yeah, I'd be like, if you like uniform choice and ignite, it might. It's probably the most savage song on record. It's got the most attack to it. I place a high premium mm-hmm. on attack, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, it's it's not a bad, certainly not a bad choice. I dig that song, Jason. I would not give them that song. I would give them the title track, "Knee Deep in Guilt." Mm. That's my hot track. I like the honesty of the lyrics. I like the way that the song feels. The mid tempo. I enjoy that. And I like the kind of, I mean, I could be wrong, embrace inspired lyrics for that yeah, song. You're, you're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was almost, those, the lyrics of that song are like, almost almost like, in case you just listen to this whole thing and you didn't fucking get it, you know, I'm not running for office. This is how I fucking live. Yeah. You know, like, in other words, I didn't write any of these last nine songs you listened to to score any fucking points. I'm not checking any hardcore boxes. I'm saying what I individually or we as a as a limited collective feel needs to be said. I really dig that song, you know, for those reasons. And then the okay. no apologies thing is 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 correct in the same in the same fashion. I kind of had a follow-up question though with the yeah. lyrics. I mean, what prompted you to write those lyrics of I'm not for hire, bands don't save lives? I you know, I don't have to name names because it was even true of people I didn't know, but they're just there's from about 1987 here until I kind of fell out of touch with it and got more like immersed in like sort of left this political punk rock up North. There was just this constant escalation of self-importance, hardcore musician to the point where certain hardcore royalty to this day can play the same 10 songs, you know, without any creative effort in the last 30 years and be paid top dollar for it. Totally, they're right. Not gonna stop them. Still friends with a lot of them, but that ain't heroism. That ain't saving lives. 
That's depictional. That's in case you wanted to know what I was like right after high school. This is it. And I was a hell of a guy and I stood for some great things. But I'm 55 years old. I've buried, um, you know, I've buried the two women who raised me. I'm caring for my father through some very sketchy patches of health. I come from a family riddled with addiction. My life has been speckled with a lot of unjustifiable violence. Luckily, none of it domestic, none of it involving people I'm close to, you know. But, and, you know, my father and my, my father and my sister were addicts. My sister is no longer with us. I don't, I just don't buy it. I, just, I, can, I cannot fucking stand hardcore superheroes. I hate them. Some of them are my best friends, but fuck them. It's just, it's, that's not why we're here. You know, I was like, I always thought it was the coolest move. I always thought Embrace sounded like it was broken or like some, some of the mics were down when they recorded the demo. Like, I was like, I don't really like Embrace. It sounds empty and it sounds hollow, but I thought it was so bitching. Let's go from minor threat to no more alcohol. Like, I thought it was such a cool move. Because everybody wanted Dad to come back and cut off some more heads. He wasn't doing it. You know, he went in a completely different direction. You know, it was like, you know, one of the reasons, you know, heroes are real. You can have heroes in this limited sense that people's creativity inspires you or people's at least visible conscience impacts yours and influences your own. And I believe in that kind of heroism. It's self-elevation or collective or the establishment of collective boundaries based on lines drawn by musicians. I think it's horseshit. You know, I just think it's group does nothing for me. Uh, I don't remember how I got on that, ty- that, that, uh, tirade, but it's a, the lyrics it's a recu- the title track. Yeah. I think it's a recurring theme. <laughs> you know, um, and is your, is your thought about those heroes type thing? Cause I, I totally get what you're saying. I have mm-hmm. influences. I have people that I, but is it almost like your, um, your way of saying too? Like we're all fallible, so it's like you're holding these people on such a pedestal, and it's like, well, it's, you know, you like you you're you're on the inside, right? So you know, mm-hmm. you said I'm friends with some of these heroes. Mm-hmm. Is part of it too? Like people are worshiping this guy, but I've seen. Well, this yeah, dude. I mean, in some cases, whatever, I know. In some cases, I know where the bodies are buried, but I've got my own bodies, so I'm not about that. No, I'm never going to call somebody and say, you know, you're off the real shit on Mike Judge, blah, 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 blah. You know, I would never do. No, I'd never do that to Mike Ferraro. He's, he's a, you know, he's a class act and has been good to me and my family. But, you know, some of your perception on people might be that, that, you know, whether it be anybody from the original Rev crew or whatever, you can sit there and say, I know these guys to be a little bit different than they're held up. Yeah, that's, that's a thing. True of the original Uniform Choice crew. You know what's bothersome for me? Most of the negative things that people have to say about me are completely inaccurate, are completely fictional, and are not nearly as bad as the true bad things about me. You know, I hear all these stories about how I was an insufferable snob and a complete dick to people outside chosen Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and Bremen, Germany, Germany, and everything else. Pretty sharp and always been pretty pretty conscious about how I treat people because obnoxious, arrogant musicians, they're a pet peeve of mine. So when I hear a lie about me, I'm able to spot it right off the bat. And they are many. People who maybe didn't dig that I said some bruising things about things that meant a lot to them in public or in fanzines and stuff, then create their own stories or their own mythologies about me having been judgmental or condescending or cruel to them. It's not 
my personal one-on-one demeanor, so I know it to be bullshit. You know, uh, it's that bugs. And I mean, hardcore has always been a place where where one person climbs by you know telling lies about another. The the Tony Redman straight edge book doesn't have any of that in it. Well, it has a little bit, of it. but. I thought it was a really interesting, like, I think Tony got mad at me when I did a panel thing on that. And I felt like I poked some holes in, in some things that were in it, or at least in mindsets. But to me, it didn't disqualify the doc. I think he did a great job on that book, and it's a great book. But to me, it exposed how absolutely over-the-top and ridiculous and incorrect our own oral histories are. Like, our, you know, when you... When you you know when you let the lunatics run the asylum and say how it really was, the horseshit stacks high as a fucking as an elephant's neck. You know, if you read that book, the sloth crew was basically a paramilitary organization. You know, stacking up bodies on the side of the road. You know, and apparently Dubar was rescuing me from lions and tigers and dragons and ninjas <laughs> and you know, and Billy Rubin. Billy Rubin was some malicious psychophant who you know was just out to get people and defame other people. I mean, it is really is a really a document that exists to show how full of shit all of us are when talking about one another. And that's not on Tony. That's on us. But, you know, I don't know if that perspective is granted to every reader. Yeah. Because sometimes I, people read stuff and they just assume it's fact. Yeah. You know, you hear, see something. Oh, I, you know, because um, yeah, I, I love the book. And like you said, Tony, all Tony's doing, you know, it's like that age old thing. Don't kill the messenger. Tony yeah. was just archiving it and putting it together and, and doing all that, I, like I, I would I would have had no patience or skill for it. I admire. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, like yeah. I was thinking about trying to piece together a book like that. I mean, the amount of work that he put in, and yeah. I, you know, we've talked to Tony. He's a man of integrity and stuff. Yeah. Um, but like you said, you can't. Somebody says the sky is green, and they don't. They want to be quoted on it. Then right. You know, I mean, put that there's in. different people that participate in things like that. Like take Joe Nelson from Trust Record, right? If Joe Nelson fills something with a bunch of hyperbole and a bunch of mythology and for all intents and purposes, you know, flaming swords and flying witches, he's entertaining himself. He's having fun with it. He has no malicious intentions. Other people, I think, as they race towards 60, trying to set the record straight on something is really kind of irrelevant. And why be prideful? Why not just give a historical, you know? Well, and then there's do. people, and then there's people who I think self-edit in order to move units, you know, and that's that to me is gross. Yeah, we've run into. I mean, I, I could, yeah, yeah, like okay, people who call you. So we we all do we all do podcast stuff here. People who call me back and want me to yank content. I almost never say yes. Almost never, like I'm like you know, I'm pretty bad at editing. I don't know how to get it out of there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we had someone. I'm not. I'm not going to say who, but we had someone ask for the raw file and then send back timestamps of things that they wanted edited out. And I was beyond annoyed. I, was I like, guess that's okay, but you, maybe maybe that's a discussion you have before you tape the episode. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to, I'd like, you know, I'd like to be able to go back over this, something like that. Like, I'm listening to the conversation we've had here today, right? And I'm finding it regrettable how much I've referenced that from Uniform Choice, right? 
like and it, it clearly suggests that when I think about hardcore history, when I think about what's influenced my path, he's front of mind. I don't expect that I have that kind of importance in his life. So I should be saying as much positive as I am negative. I mean, we're all fallible. We're not we're not all noble in our discussion of hardcore, myself included. I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say there, except that I just I would like to think myself hopelessly, almost self-destructively addicted when I'm doing anything artistic. I just, I, I, if I can spot bullshit in my own work down the road, I hate the work. That's why, hence the Thought Crusade vocals. The only vocals I have out there where I feel like I'm putting on an act, trying to portray something as opposed to who I really was. It's silence overcame no, no, I no, just, no. I was. <laughs> we want to allow you. To, you know, we yeah. want to make sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. No, I know. I know what you mean. And as far as, I mean, if you get facts wrong too, that's one thing. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you're like, oh, you know what? I said this. Guilty. I've done it. Whatever. And you know, that's what the next episode's for to say. Hey, by the way, so and so said this came out on this label or what? You know, because you'll have people that listen and go, oh, that we listened and that's not how. I mean. We've had people say that to us about stories that have been told on on here. I heard, that's I heard, not how it went down, and it's like I heard a story told on your. Well, I heard Purcell telling some stories about Fenders, right? Those crazy night and gang uh, occurrences, fight, this thing where I unplugged his guitar and everything else, right? Everything he said is true. That's not where I'm going with it, but I'm the one who lived in Southern California. I think he's telling that story with absolute sincerity and to his absolute recollection, right? But they came out to Southern California several times and they played Fenders numerous times. He's got shows confused and he's got chronologies wrong, and things like like nights that they happened. Why would anybody bother to correct that or raise their hand or speak up about that? Right. It's like he's talking about John Macias and I'm like, no, by the time that the, you know, the lads thing was going on, Circle One wasn't even around anymore, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's all technology's off, but that's like if I talk about my times at CBGB's and my perception of the place and someone from you know, one of the New York bands is, yo, yo, Omahone, he's got it completely wrong. I'm going to have you wake me when he's done. You know? Yeah, and we've had, and it's, I think people are very I don't want to say protective, but it's like, there's this, with, with hardcore, especially I've noticed, and there's a real need for people, I think, to have everything archived and i get mm-hmm. that but part of the fun is some of the stories even if they're not true that's a good and point getting people's different perspectives mm-hmm. i mean if you treat it as fact that's one thing but it's almost like yeah like you said do we really need to you know what is that saying like you know if it comes down to the truth or the lie i print the lie like right i don't know in some instances like you said with porcel what he's saying is true. The essential. It was fun. It was fun to listen to because I remember the time and they were crazy incidents. Yeah, but and the, the meat time, of but, the story is. But true. the verbal timestamps come popping up because I was, you know, Fenders was my local club, and I know that. And on the other hand, too, it's like it was thirty-five years ago. Like, do you, some people don't remember what they eat for breakfast. The, the, the thing about hardcore archivism and about like the, the the dearth of documentaries that are out there and. You know, podcasts like yours, to a certain extent, podcasts like mine, uh, some of the books that come out and everything else is 
on the one hand, it celebrates something really great, and I've come to understand that without all this documentation, it will eventually be lost. That's the whole mission statement, that trust record, right? But at the same time, sometimes I think the deification hampers ongoing Like, uh, you know, I don't know Tim Singer very well, but I love that he's in two or three bands and that he's still exploring his voice and doing other stuff, even if he's... I love that Walter is a, is a multi-imprint guy. You know, I can't, I can't wrap my head around how doing youth today doesn't bore him. That's my own issue with me. You know, it's just, he's so creative and so fascinating. You know, I, 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 I can't relate to revisiting it, but you know, when I interviewed him, we talked openly about that and shared our perspectives and he made sense. You know? I, I also think we're starting to threshold. Not, you guys have a, a running theme here. You do all these releases in chronological order, right? And if you do it, you get through the catalog, you get up to where you're, you're addressing releases in real time. You've created a doc. It's linear, it's consecutive, and it will always be there as the documentation of this thing, right? Beyond things like that that are structured and that make sense are things like the Discord, the Fugazi archive that Ian's doing, and things like that. Beyond that, I feel like we're starting to threshold on this live in the past thing. And we're going to start to damage it year after year after year after year. We keep trotting out the same memories. You know, it's like, it's, I, I'm going to try and do some 411 next year if the guys are available to it because 411 has new material that hasn't been recorded. But much more of my mind time goes to how am I going to create new. And 411 would be paid better than a new band. 411 would get better shows than a new band. But a new band be a new band and every day it's a new day for sure yeah i mean with with hardcore it's it's nuts to me i've probably mentioned it before to think that like when i was getting into stuff in the 90s mm-hmm. there's a lot of these bands that it's like i never thought and i'm, and I'm glad i saw them this is no i've gorilla biscuits youth of today judge bold i never thought i would see any of those bands now they play fairly often um and it's it's a blast it's fun and you know it's it's but it is kind of you know interesting that we're in an age where it's almost like no no other bands um like i can't think of many bands that haven't done reunions it's yeah and i'll tell you right now that if without a trump presidency 411 will never be considered a you know, without the without the political evolution in the United States in the last you know four to six years, there'd have been no place for it. I don't think we had an appetite for it. But uh, like No Finance, I think it's highly unlikely you'll ever see No Finance review. You know, I uh, I don't resent how much harder it is to get things done with a new band. In fact, I found that smaller room shows the most thrilling. But like I went to punks and I went to, this is getting really long. If you guys have to edit me down to keep me from putting guests or listeners no, to no, sleep, no. I'm not going to worry about it. Not at all. You know, I, I won't be bruised. Uh, but like I went to that punks in the punks in the park festival that was in Southern California last week. Right. And one of my favorite bands was playing one of one of one of my good friends who I have a running political debate with was, was playing and it's always good to see them. And most bands that weekend had members that I knew. Right. By and large, I was, Bored out of my skull. I could not relate to the fact that I was in the Stone Brewing VIP area 
there was an actual physical fence between, you know, me and the rest of the crowd and between, like, say, artist park, artist areas. Not that it was sellout shit. That's not what I'm saying. There's, you've got to show it a few thousand people out there, practical necessities. But I found it completely unreadable. And I found it, the music, to largely rehash. Bands I wasn't particularly familiar with sounded exactly like each other to me. And the level of substance and the level of... There was only one band I saw get really topical all day, and that was this band called anti you know, And oh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they talked it here. up and went... They talked it up and went off. I'm not familiar with them, but they... I left with a solid understanding of where they're coming from. If I didn't know a lot of these other people, I still wouldn't know anything about them, you know? You know, I didn't, I didn't see seven seconds because, you know, at the end of the, end of the day, you only drink from the Holy Grail 120 times. You know, I'm looking at the lineup now. Well, um, like Murder City, Murder City is Devils huge with Sunday. me. They're, they're, they're the main reason I was there. Uh-huh. Um, I feel bad anytime Russ Rankin is down in Southern California. I would like to be there to see him play. And I got to see Good Riddance. You know, I know people in the adolescence. I know people in, in Seven Seconds. I know people in, you know, I know Ephraim. I know people in all these different things. And at the end of the day, it just all kind of blurred together. You know, I, I've, you know, I've had Channel 3 in my bars. I've had, you know, and I was just looking at all of it. I was for me. Did Dead even Kennedy's with all play? even with all these no, no, no the vandals ended up stepping in because they're drummer back. Right, that's what I was going to say. But no, no, but, but for for the for the level of familiarity that existed between the, me and the musicians involved in that festival, I felt completely outside of it. Like I could, I found it almost impossible to identify with or relate to. And so maybe I, to my own detriment, I'm a died in the old basement bunker. I don't know. No, I, sure. get, I get it. Which all leads us to say, what is your hot track, Dan? You didn't give it to oh, us. Oh, geez, God, we got way the fuck <laughs> off track, didn't we? In the woods. Um, I really like uh, Knee Deep and Guilt. I hate that we would just cover two songs here, but I, I feel like it's a summation of the whole rest of the record. That said, I think the funnest song to listen to, the best song, is the opener. And just mm. that message to make a concrete change. You know, it's like for one thing, I was singing outside of my register, outside of my range, and I feel like I pulled it off. So I'm really proud of that. My voice isn't that high. You know, that Rocky and Bullwinkle stuff. I'm not. It doesn't come naturally to me, but I, I, I'm really proud of the execution, the energy of it, and then you know that stop on a dime, Joe Foster and stuff with, and still, you know, and jumping back in, like from an execution point standpoint, that's my favorite song on the record. From a content standpoint, virus is the most most important, so it's great that you do that. And in terms of really where I was at at the time mentally, you'd even guilt most relevant. So the first song opens up with a sample, and I should know where the sample is from, but I can't. Um, it's from Rebel it. Without a Cause. You know, uh, Warner Brothers, you know, contact Jordan Arthur. And you know, <laughs> it's an unlicensed sample. Uh, called, no, it's Jim Beckus. It's It's what is this? It's a millionaire from Billigan's Island, Rebel Without a Cause, trying to tell his son to get his act straight. But I just liked, you know, I hadn't done that kind of music for the better part of a decade. And, it's, you know, someday you're going to look back at this and come on. I was like, you know, basically, I felt like that sample basically said, like, fuck looking back. Yeah. We didn't do the seven inch here, but that should probably be another episode. Yeah, that's, 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 we were actually going to say, um, 
Well, why don't we wrap up? Uh, and then we'll... Yeah, well, we could include that because we talked amongst ourselves that we should mm-hmm. talk about the 7-inch on this, but we really want to talk to Chris Lisk. So if you're, if, if you're keen, we would like to talk to both of you two together when the uh, time comes closer for the 7-inch. Fine with me if he wants to do it. Party. The best music on the... I don't remember the name of the song, but the best music on the entire 7-inch is that bridge with the... He's got this kind of snaking, weird, sexy riff going behind it while I'm doing it. That means nothing. Was means nothing. Then means nothing. This is now the riff that's going on behind that. Let's wrote it, and it's a fucking a cool riff. And I didn't, I didn't know he had it in it, which is really condescending. <laughs> but when he when he wrote it, I was like, risk. I perceived him as yeah, because I I didn't you know, we don't want to like half it like. Yeah, sure. You know, we've already been talking for a while. I was like, let's let's come at it with fresh. Well, uh, I know you guys do long episodes, and I've been watching the clock the whole time. And I mean, we got you. You know, we got you at least an hour. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, and we to a certain intro and an outro. To a yeah, certain is, extent, it's, it's, it's a middle aged. Okay, it's a middle aged asshole rant, ranting on and on about how original. Hey, that's. What I don't know how much whole, of that we need. That's what our whole podcast yeah. is based around at this point. And, and to bunch tie middle aged assholes. To, to tighten the bow, this part's not going to go in the podcast. Okay. The, wow. the uh, person to, to, to reference. Hey, what's up, everybody? Well, let me do that again. Hey, what's up, everybody? Yo, I don't, whatever, whatever you like. Anyway, it's Javier again. And I'm just once again bugging you to remind you that uh, you can check us out on Patreon www.whereitwhenpodcast.com will lead you there and like if you were a patron then right after this well instead of this actually you'd be listening to me jason and greg talking about the speak 714 record um so i would like to take a moment to give a shout out a bit at bow if you will to those top tier patrons that we have who support us every month so graciously Billy Tunnell, Brandon Gavell, Brian Buskey, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Kecklinger, she, Cliche John, David Palmer, Dirk Focus, Gone, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Nate of Head to Wall Fame, Ryan Walker, Ryan White, Tad Payton, Tim Shear, Tyler of the Life and Death Brigade, and Siren Records. Woo! That's a mouthful. Anyway, once again, www.wherewimpodcast.com. Thanks for listening this far. Make sure you check us out on Instagram. Um, sign up for our mailing list to get a uh, a discography of Revelation Records and just a bunch of other cool shit and access to our Discord. Yeah, that's really cool too. Anyway, see you next week. Bye-bye.